Can you apply FBI persuasion techniques in business, even in high-stakes negotiations? Absolutely, according to my guests today, a former FBI hostage negotiator and a top DC publicist. Adele Gambadella and Chip Messi have just published the original and insightful book, Convince Me, high-stakes negotiation tactics to get results in any business situation. Adele is a prominent figure in the PR world, she's run PR campaigns for US President Joe Biden and well-known CEOs and global brands. She's also given speeches on crisis communications to the UN and contributes to the Wall Street Journal. Chip is a former FBI hostage negotiator and special agent. He investigated the 9-11 terrorist attacks and led the New York FBI officers' crisis negotiations team. In our conversation, they introduced the FBI-inspired concept of forensic listening, explain different types of convincing styles, and I would really recommend you listen to the whole episode because they share very useful advanced strategies for convincing, like bridging, the convincing continuum, and the convincing cliffhanger. And at the end, Chip even explains which movies realistically portray the work of law enforcement officers. And spoiler alert, it's not Die Hard. Adele, Chip, thank you for coming on. Welcome to Speak Like a CEO. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure, Oliver. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. And thank you for joining us for Washington, D.C. Um, the day before Thanksgiving. So I know it's a busy week and it's an important week in the American calendar. So I really, really appreciate, appreciate you taking the time. Now, I have to ask, why... Does it make sense for a former FBI hostage negotiator and a crisis communications expert to work together? Chip, do you want to go first? or You go ahead, Adele. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, um, you know, I think one of the reasons why our collaboration makes a lot of sense is because I think as crisis communication expert, like you are, Oliver, right? Um, I think one of the things we do is we're so focused on fixing the outcome, right? Like here are the next five steps. Here's exactly what you have to do. Um, and I know this was certainly true of me. And one of the things that Chip does, um, which is really fantastic, is he comes in and he takes care of how people are feeling and how, how it impacts the larger organization, how people feel in the mood, whatever changes you're going to make. So it's really a change management um, and emotional regulation for people who are going through really difficult times. And so while I can do a lot of the, you know, and Chip does this too with me, but I do a lot of the implementation, the messaging, the right, you know, dealing with the crisis at hand right away, he's dealing with how people feel about it, convincing them to do the right thing, um, to move forward, which is half the battle, right? Because a lot of times they know what to do, but they just won't do it, right? So I think that's one of the reasons why our collaboration makes sense. But Chip, do you want to? Do you want to? Oh, I, 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 right, exactly. I, I, it was uh, to me, it was very interesting, Oliver, when I started working with Adele. How how uh, reluctant sometimes the the leadership would be to move on the specifics that Adele would give them, and it, you know, the 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 kind of you know clouded thinking that that goes on. The circle the wagons. The we're not going to say anything or, you know, because this is so unfair. And moving them from that was, was I didn't think that was going to be a problem. I thought, well, here's the four things that, you know, Adele advises. You should heed this and do it immediately. And they're still, you know, holding back. So that, that to me was, was interesting. Yeah, and that, that's fascinating. I mean, I work a lot in crisis communications, and it is partly an emotional story, right? Often there's there's a factual basis, but how a story, how a crisis evolves, is always dependent on the emotional reaction on the other side because it's, it's high stakes, right? 
people may be in danger. Maybe there's loss of life or casualties or some sort of loss that is felt by people. Uh, you know, if it's credit card data, if it's, um, you know, physical safety and so on. So I can completely understand now where you're coming from. And I think that's that's just fascinating. fascinating. But where are the differences between, let's say, a, a hostage situation, an FBI investigation, and a corporate crisis? So we established what's similar, but what's, what's actually different here, Chip? I think it... Uh, on its face, it's going to be the fact that, you know, lives are involved. And, and most people, when they talk to us, you know, they say, they'll ask me, well, I mean, this is kind of a different situation. You know, we're, we're talking about a brand identity or a crisis in leadership, and you were dealing with life and death. Well, but that's only because that was my day to day. It was my normal. And so what we say always is that stress is relative. So, so when, when, uh, when a client of, of yours, Oliver, was dealing with the fact of, like, say, when you were working for GM and you were trying to get people to follow a certain program and so forth, and they perhaps were suffering from some type of team problem or leadership issue, that crisis, what they were experiencing is the same way the body interprets it as a as a crisis of of if their physical body's coming under attack and it's life or death so so in the moment our brain can't differentiate between a physical attack on our body versus a, an attack on our reputation it the stress level rises to the same level and the brain starts to shut down its analytical abilities as you know so so in, in, in that way, you know, sure, that's how people see it. But in reality, there's so much more in common. That's really interesting. And in, in my experience, Adele, we ha it's always an emotional component to crisis that makes it so fascinating and so, so difficult also to manage for a company. However, often companies want to respond in a fairly factual, logical way. Do, is that your experience as well? And does, does it help for, for you to work with CHIP? It does. It has made a huge difference. Um, you know, I think a lot of times, and Oliver, I think you'll identify with this. There's something um, I wrote about in my previous book called Spike Your Brand, which is called the fairness fallacy, right? And in the fairness fallacy, what we see is when somebody calls us up for a crisis, right? You're, I see you nodding your head. That's you not totally fair. get this, right? right? It's like, <laughs> that's one of the first things they say, right? And they can spend hours and hours on what's fair and what's not fair and what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do and you know how everybody is wrong about what they did and it's just a waste of time but it's necessary right they need to vent so one of the things chip really brings to the table is this thing we call forensic listening and it's something we developed right which is just you know i could be giving instruction to the ceo and i'm thinking and oliver i'm sure you've been in this position too right maybe there's a whole board of room full of people, you're giving instruction, you know exactly what to do, you know how things are going to play out, you've got the next four or five, six steps ahead, right? And you're delivering the message and the people seem like they're receiving it, right? You're like, I'm, yes. I'm convincing, I'm good, this is good, they're going to do what I say. And, and I'll get off the phone and I'll debrief with Chip. And what will you say, Chip? <laughs> He'll always like analyze the room, right? Like, can you tell him a yeah. little bit about how that goes? Typically, I, I think I think that's right, and that's one of the things that we recommend to our our clients as well for negotiation uh, 
positions or, you know, critical meetings is to have another person with you because, you know, Adele is focused in on the various issues that the client has to, uh, you know, take on. She's trying to extract more information. She's taking on next actions. She's developing their, their next steps. And what I'm doing on that call is I'm, I'm trying to figure out who in that room is, you know, is, is showing anger, reluctance, uh, perhaps fear, you know, all the, all the um, emotions and what they might be displaying in terms of their future tendencies. So when we get off a call, what we'll do is we'll have a, a post call with that that has to brings together, okay, this is what I heard, this is what I saw, you know, a, as a result of my FBI background. And then Adele takes that in consideration on our follow-up communications. So so yeah, we it's a good team that way. And yeah. is, is that an idea that is derived from law enforcement, that there are always two people in the meeting and one is really focused on listening? And when you say forensic listening, I'm assuming it's not just you know, the audio, what's being said, but also the nonverbal cues. Is, is that right? Exa exactly, Oliver. So um, it, our practice in the FBI was to, was to always have two people whenever you do an interview. There's various reasons for that legally, but the, but the behavioral reason is so that one person can focus in on the other to read like exactly like you aptly described what they're not saying. What is it that, that perhaps they're leaving out verbally and also what is going on with their body movement? And that's another differentiator that Adele and I talk about versus body language. We say that body movement is perhaps more important because we are not static individuals. When we are involved in something, when we are describing something, when we are feeling something, our body is going to move. It, you know, our, our hands are ball and unball. We rock back and forth. Um, there's a good story that maybe Dell will be able to tell about blading, you know, how you turn away from somebody and what that might mean. So there's a host of things that, right, exactly, that just like you said, another person can pick up while the other person is perhaps, you know, more involved with the question. Yeah. Adele, do you want to share that story? Sure, sure. So really quickly, um, uh, I had a crisis communication client and I went to their office um, Chip was traveling, so he couldn't make the meeting. But I was in their office, and I was asking the woman questions about what was happening. It was a very contentious situation. There was some level of, like, ethical, you know, it was a little shaky, right? So I was asking a lot of really in-depth questions because I wanted to make sure we had the right strategy and that, you know, we were walking the line as we should, of course. And every time I asked her a question, she would move her back towards me and like sit sideways every time I asked her a difficult question. And I got out of the meeting and I called Chip and I'm like, so the client did the weirdest thing. Every single time she would move her back to me and da, da, da. And then, and then, then Chip was like, well, that's something called bleeding. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is that? And, you know, it, it's this idea that like, you're trying to sort of like cover, right? You're, you're, you're trying to move your body away from the conversation because it's not making you comfortable. Mm. And I think, you know, when you think about forensic listening, as we, as we talk about it, one of the things we, we tell our clients is it's like four quadrants of a conversation, right? Because forensic listening is different than active listening. Active listening, the whole goal is to de-escalate someone, right? De-escalate mm -hmm. someone in the moment. But 
forensic listening is is the idea of reexamining a conversation after it's happened because we believe words leave clues, right? Like you're a great communicator, Oliver. You know this, right? And so most of us sit in on meetings or we have interactions with people and we do it like one-offs. But we don't think about what Chip is um what Chip really does really well, and I'll, and I'll have him speak to this, which is called a pattern of life. And when you think about a pattern of life, when you're when you're meeting with someone, like understanding them on a level they've never been understood before, and you can take notes in a way, and we have some advice on how to take notes, that you come back to the conversation and you just wow them with how well you've listened. And listening seems like something so, okay, everybody does it. But does everybody do it well? You know, and so certainly um, not. No, no. And, yeah, and there's certainly a difference between hearing. Uh, you know, that, that's mm. just the phys- physiological act of uh, of catching sound waves, and listening. And you actually take you suggested we take this to another level of the forensic listening, which I which I really love. Yeah, yeah, and it's the, it's four quadrants. Chip, maybe you can explain. Sure, the quadrants. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So we suggest uh, to our clients, and, and this is also in the book that we just wrote, Convince Me, is uh, it's a quadrant breakout. So what you have is um, we suggest taking notes for next actions for what you know you need to do. But you also have on your paper is is you know like the like the line divided. So uh, you have one quadrant in the upper right, and that's going to be about the themes. So when you're listening to somebody, when you're in a meeting. You know, you want to jot down what are the themes that are being developed, what themes are being repeated. Uh, the other quadrant on the top left is going to be uh, about the emotion. What is it that the person seems to be, you know, attaching to those themes? You know, are they very excited by it? Does something anger them? What is what is present? Jot that down as well. And so, for the the bottom quadrants, what we have there is. Voice, pitch, tone, and cadence. Your voice is so important, and the voice of the speaker, obviously, as you know. Yes. And then it's 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 going to be body movement, what we just described to you. So, it, so if you could take in all these things, and that's what we suggest people do, you're gonna you're going to be able to recall in such a more vivid way what was really at the center of that person's message. What was it that they were trying to communicate? Even though the meeting was might have been about you know, how to, you know, make sure we get our timesheets in on time. What was really important was that, you know, the CEO didn't feel respected. And that was coming across again and again in the various messaging that he was that he was pushing out. So that's what we say with With the stories and themes and his voice and where he got emotional and where he didn't. Yeah, right. There's so much more to it. So really move from one-dimensional listening to those four-dimensional listening. I I love that you developed a a method around that because that I think is really helpful and we make sure we visualize that visual from the book. See, Oliver, you just did a message for us. Thank you. We're going to use that from now. I like (laughs) four-dimensional messaging. Please do. Four-dimensional listening. I love it. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yes. No, my pleasure. I just—I mean, it was obvious. You, it was—it was, it was a shoe in. <laughs> obvious to you, for the I, I mean, not months. to me. Clearly, I was like, "Huh, that's really good. We're going to use that now." <laughs> yeah, and and, and you know, I, I still think about the term you use, the fairness fallacy, because I think that's so apt. And I, I know the situation you present to a room as a critical situation. 
you and I, we know what needs to be done. People may be nodding, maybe they say yes, but Chip would probably analyze and say they don't really mean it, they're not convinced. And what I found effective in those situations is to tell them the story. Now, this is the story out there that's developing. Mm. Now, the open question is, who's the villain? Because stories tend to have a villain. And do you want to be the villain? Oh, gosh, no, of course not. Well, someone is going to be the villain in the story. Otherwise, it's not a story. And a crisis is an emerging story. And that tends Mm -hmm. to get them to lean in a little more. Oh, shit. (laughs) We don't want to be the villain. Okay, then let's see how we can make something else the villain, an external factor, the recession or, you know... um, uh, natural catastrophe something that is outside of our control so this is this is what i found um fairly effective now back to your book so i love the book it's called convince me high stakes negotiation tactics to get results in any business situation in your book you argue that business leaders should really be fantastic in should be expert convincer why should they be expert convincer and then of course how do they become that well, I think one of the things, you know, we discovered as a result of, of writing our book um, is, you know, m- most people, they develop a certain level of skill and they kind of stop at age six because by the time they're six years old, um, you know, and anyone who has kids who's listening to this podcast can know, like, kids are fantastic negotiators. They're really good at convincing. They know all the tricks and levers to pull, yes. right? Stubborn all of the good stuff, right? I mean, I, I, I pin my eight-year-old up against anybody who wants to have a negotiation, right? He's pretty good. But by the time kids are six years old, so like first grade, roughly, right? They understand supply and demand, perceived value. Um, you know, I mean, all of these like really complex, um, you know, negotiation and convincing skills. But the problem is, is most of us don't go past those skills. We learn them at age six and we stop. We don't really think about how do we advance this? And when we do run across somebody that we don't like, that we can't seem to get on our side, we say, that guy's a jerk. I don't like him. You know, (laughs) of course he doesn't believe me because he's an idiot, you know, and and we have all these like ways at which we have excuses to not change our convincing style. And I think if CEOs could recognize what is my convincing style and, and then contrary also, what is someone else's convincing style? And how do I change and adapt um, as I go forward? And, and, and most people don't change. They don't adapt. And so our book is really full of strategies to get more advanced at convincing, to be more persuasive, to be more influential. Because we have to persuade, excuse me, we have to persuade people all day, every day to do what we want, right? So yeah. It's critical skill. Before we dive deeper, I'd like to understand what sort of are, are there typical convincing styles? Are there like three typical or four typical ones, or how uh, c- categories we can think about? Yeah, we we do have two categories. Chip, do you want to do you want to get into explaining this? Uh, so one of the things that we've we developed as a result of of the book was in the research. We found that there seems to be you know, a lot of research around the type of convincer you are. Mm -hmm. So there is the emotional and the fact base. Now, we're not saying you're either or, but we're saying that you do have a a leaning toward one or the other. Now, you can go up and down on that scale, Mm -hmm. you know, closer to the pure of either side. But in general, you know, people do tend to have a favorite, but 
not necessarily be the dominant part. So we say with a an emotional convincer, and Adele has some great stories around this regarding car purchasing. <laughs> um, but the idea is that you are appealing again to the emotion. You're you're using stories. You're going about it in in the sense of you know, pulling that person in. And again, you know, it's, you know, we're talking to Oliver, one of the uh, experts on storytelling, yes. but this is, this is a part of the messaging that, that appeals to them. Fact-based, obviously they're more interested. They will say in numbers that, you know, that, you know, I need to see that, you know, what is the data behind this? You know, can you show me the facts and figures or else they get turned off very early on and won't listen to you versus, and, you know, as opposed to an emotional convincer, if you're coming at them with facts and figures, they could care less. They're not going to connect. There's gonna, not going to be that synergy. But Adele, could you tell the story about the, the car? Please. That'd be great. Sure, sure. So one of my really good friends, her name, her name is Dara. I won't say what her husband's name is, but her name is Dara. And she's married to a finance lawyer. She's in public relations, right? So Dara's in public relations. Her husband's in finance. Um, and, he, and he's an attorney. And he's he's very fact based, right? And she was dying to buy herself a Mercedes. Um, she said, you know, I really want a Mercedes convertible. I've earned it. I, you know, I I want it because I'll look good in it. Come on, I need to buy this car. And she's going to her husband and she's saying, I'll look so good in it. It will make me feel successful. Like Mercedes is a brand I've always wanted. And come on, I really want this car. And he was like, No. <laughs> and she comes to me and I'm like, okay. I was like, you're approaching him all wrong. I was like, he is a fact-based guy and he really wants to hear this argument from uh, from that perspective. I was like, so let's look some stuff up about your car and see if we can rejigger your argument a little bit. And so what we found is, um, and this is like a commercial for Mercedes, right? You should get them to sponsor your podcast. Yes. Um, we found is, <laughs> yes, right? <please>. Why not? <laughs> Maybe. What we found is Mercedes is the safest luxury convertible available out there, right? So that was number one, right? It's got the best resale value. Number two, fact based, right? Um, when you and we had all these like facts lined up, right? And he was like, "Okay, yeah, it seems to make sense. Let's buy the car." So you know, she approached it from his style, not from, "Hey, I'll look good in it, and I really love the car. Isn't it pretty?" To you know, it makes sense financially for yeah, us. It'll that, last a long time, so on. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a great, great story. It's a, that's a great story. <laughs> and so if, if I deduct from that, so first is you need to know yourself. What What is my style? What do I lean towards? We all have a bit of both. But then I should understand where the other person's coming from. Now, what do I do if I have a room full of people I need to convince? And I have to assume there's a mixture of convincing styles in the room. Still, you can probably deduct from who's in the room what styles they're likely more to lean towards, right? I mean, like, you know, if, you know, when you worked at GM, when you saw the room, like, what do you think? If you had to guess, are they fact-based or are they emotional convincers? If you're thinking about a room full of, like, engineers, yes. right? Engineers and finance people, right? <laughs> yeah. I think it's, right? it's pretty obvious. <laughs> they're going to go fact-based. now yeah. with... Yeah, exactly. And with a lot of startups, it's often, oh, we meet investors. Okay, you know, that's a that's a pretty fact-based audience. If you go to an event, people are on stage and you're speaking, people want to be moved emotionally. So it's context as well. It so is. context plus audience, right? I think so it is context plus, plus audience. And I think also just thinking about the room full of people, right? I think what you want to do is you kind of want to switch back and forth, back and forth within the style, but you want to think about what 
does really the audience want to hear? What are they there for? That's also really important, right? You have you've got to understand um, what uh-huh. did they come to hear, right? Yes. Like so, with startups, I think one of the things I think is in, you know influ- um, interesting about hearing startup founders talk is they are so excited about their product, right? And they're they're emotionally yes. invested, and like the investors will come and they'll squash it and they'll say something like. Yeah, but what's your EBITDA? And they're like, well, mm-hmm. that's not really important. What's important is is the market availability. And it's like, look at you know, it's like, look at what I have to offer. And and the investors like, mm, but but the numbers don't support your hypothesis. And it's like anytime you would get off the phone with the startup founder, and I worked with a lot of them initially in my in my agency. Oh, they would be so deflated. They would be so upset. And I was like, you got to come on with a fact based argument. You go on with emotion and, you know, but if you don't have any emotion, the investor wouldn't like that either. So that's, that's an right. important part that's as right. well, right? You've got to balance it. You've got to balance it and, and emphasize what's important in that context. And I think the really good communicators, be they CEOs or founders, they tend to have the whole the whole spectrum at their disposal. And they're quite intentional about the context, the audience, uh, you know, what do I play first? What do I, where do I go second? And they they're really good at intuitively through a lot of practice to use all of that to their advantage. Whereas the maybe the mediocre uh, communicators that may sometimes fall flat because they misread the room or haven't. It's probably more likely they haven't thought about it. Right? They just go in and just do the same thing over and over again. They're not adapting their styles, like just like the yeah. six-year-old, right? They're like, I've been a yes. successful CEO my whole entire life. I've been pretty convincing. I think I've done pretty well. And then they get to a room that they, you know, that that's full of people that they haven't necessarily like come in contact with. And if they, you know, if they don't like the outcome, they walk away and they go, well, it wasn't me. That's right. It was the room. Was the room. I need different people. <laughs> So where do we go next? So I understand the different styles and I want to improve. I'm a business leader. I want to become better at convincing. So what do I do now? What I would say is one of the things you really want to examine is where, where, like I said, where people are coming from. That's first. But you also have to understand where they are on what you were trying to convince them about, right? So you've got to Instead of starting with your strongest point first, what you have to do is come from a point of agreement. Where can you both agree? Where do you, where do you start where you both can agree? And this is tricky because we have all been taught in school, right? And in various other settings throughout our lives that you should start with your strongest point first. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't work. Okay. And Oliver, I, I know you probably know why, right? Why doesn't that work? I'm not sure. Tell me. Okay. So one of the reasons why it doesn't work is because what it makes people do is dig their heels in, right? Mm. They go, okay, you know what? You started with your strongest point. I don't believe that. That's not true. Nope. Uh-uh. It's not re- It's not right for the following reasons. So instead of listening to your argument, they're just think- they're thinking about why they are certain they know the answer, right? So So instead of starting... Instead of starting with your strongest point, what you want to do is you want to start at the point of agreement and then move them down what we call a convincing continuum. And the convincing continuum is basically just melting. If you think about it like ice, it's like melting their preconceived notions, melting all of their certainty away, right? So that they start to think about things differently. You're 
you're, and this is a term that's been around a while, but FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, right? Mm -hmm. It's your job to set up, hey, you know what, maybe what you know about this topic isn't as you know vast and as you might think. And hey, maybe there's other perspectives. There's other ways of thinking about it. There's other, um, you know, there's other intuitive manners that you should be thinking about this topic. And what you're doing is you're moving them down the spectrum. Now, here's here's the trick. Most people try to move people too quickly, right? They try to go, you know what? This is my point. These are the following four reasons why my point is right. And <laughs> drop the mic, mm-hmm. right? And walk away. It's like, don't you believe me? I'm sure me? you agree. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> and I'm sure you're walking away changed completely by what I did. And and actually, that's not what happens at no, all, right? No. So, no one ever said, so, whoa, I didn't see it from that perspective. Thank you. Right. Finally, I see the light. It right. never happens, right? <laughs> never, never. It's like, you're 100% right. I'm totally wrong. Let's walk away, friend. I'm stupid. It's just, Sorry. It's, right. <laughs> That's the thing of like dreams, right? right. It's like we walk on stage and, and everyone's like, and yet you're many brilliant. people approach negotiations or conversations that way, and and, and then are surprised it doesn't work. And what you what you just told me, and thank you for opening my eyes to this because I, I wasn't aware <laughs> of this. But there's this old adage in sales as well that try to get as many yeses as possible before you actually you know try to seal the deal and the yeses are, can be very small oh it's great weather today is it yes and you know <laughs> do you also enjoy the the, the game last night oh yeah, yeah yes and and you build that report and yes and yes and yes so it feels natural to say yes and i just remember that from you know conversations with um sales experts and i think there's a lot to it and there's there's some overlap here there is, and the trick and the, the little bit of an advanced technique, though, that we talk about in our book um, is this idea of you take people down and you get a whole bunch of yeses, and that's all great, right? Mm-hmm. And you give them little different perspectives. You use fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But then you have to stop probably four or five points in. And what you have to do is you have to give them what we call a convincing cliffhanger, And what that is, is it's just enough information that they want to go seek out more information about what you said so that they can convince themselves. Because consumers are super savvy these days, right? And if you think about this from a sales perspective, when someone comes to your website, when someone's reaching out for services, they've probably done 70 to 80% of the research about who they're going to to go with before they even get on the phone with Mm -hmm. you, right? So it's your job really to get that last 20% and for them and to close the deal. And the way you do that is you give them just enough information that they may go, you know what? I need expert help with this. I, I, I don't quite know this as well as I thought. And maybe I should go research this topic. And when I do research this topic, it's going to say what this expert told me it's going to say. And to convince that way is somebody to come back to you and go, you know, I researched it. You're right. I want to go with you. And they just more they're they're less reluctant um in a sales conversation when you approach it like that rather than get on the phone and like we have the best product, we're better than our competitors, we're better than everybody else. This is why you should go with us, you know, beating the chest. It's like that that type of sale does not work anymore. It doesn't. It's an 80/20 rule. Yeah. That's really what it is. 80/20 rule. And 80% is pre-selling, persuasion, right? And Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That, that's where yeah. I got it from. And it really chimes with our experience. And I think that too many companies still assume that 
people go on a sales call and they can convince them there. Whereas people, as you said, 80% of the work is done before. And one of our podcast guests a few months ago said something um, that really resonated with me. She said that communication is the new sales. Because how do you get to the 80%? It's not by sending out sales messages, advertising. I mean, you can, but it's more powerful to do communication, PR, um, good social media work and so on, all the things we, we love to do. And that actually helps you to pre-sell and persuade the people so you can then close the deal with the 20%. Yeah, I think, and the 20% though is really critical and you have to use convincing strategies that people haven't heard of before. And they wanna be led, but not so much sold. I think if you sell too hard yeah. these days, consumers are really turned off by yes. that, right? Yes. They truly are. Chip, did you wanna add something? I'm sorry. Yeah, I just, one of the things I was thinking about though, and when you guys were discussing that is that whole idea of putting the other person in the story. Um, you know, when we, when we counsel our clients, for example, that are, are looking to gain a promotion or change their job role, something that requires, you know, the person, the people above them to take a different view of them. We, we are, what we advocate is make sure that you put your success into their story. Yes. So that it becomes, it, they become filled with an idea of, well, I did a great job with this person, clearly, you know, because, because you're, the, the way you're framing that includes them in how you've become this better person, this better leader, this, uh, this better dynamic. And that will push them over to your side because you've put them in the story. And it's, it can be it can be a real uh, change maker for you if you if you consider that instead of making it I I I, it's you know a collaborative effort that got me to this point. You're a part of that collaboration, that development of me. Before we get back to the episode, I just wanted to let you know that my new tactical guide is out. It is called Presentation Hacks: Fifty Powerful Strategies to Captivate Any Audience, and it includes hard-earned insights, not just by myself but the over 200 CEOs and world-class experts we've had on the show so far. It is completely free, so make sure you get your copy through the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. C could you give an example of how that works? Is it an, oh, imagine that you kind of story? Right, exactly. So uh, uh, the, I, the story that we, we tell is a time when um, uh, I was younger and um, one of my brother's friends uh, was telling me about this uh, ultralight. I don't know if you're familiar with ultralights, uh, mm -hmm. Oliver. You know these yep. things that don't require a pilot's license uh, to to fly. Essentially, yes, so indeed. you're a pilot and you're unlicensed, and you know you're 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 way up there, and it's incredibly dangerous. Um, but he was fascinated by it, and he wanted he wanted us to get involved. And so at the time, you know, we we were we were living on a farm, and he said, you know, Chip. You know, you could, we could actually build this, you know, we could build this together and, you know, I can, you could fly this. I mean, you're, you're 15 now, you don't have a driver's license yet, but you could actually go ahead and pilot. You could fly it around the farm. You could, you know, wave at all your friends and it would be fantastic. It's like you had your own little airport and, but he kept putting me in the story. Like, you know, oh, I could, I could see myself flying. I could see myself, you know, a part of this you know, zooming with the birds and, and how my friends would feel when they saw me. But that was just it. He had a knack for that. And what we found was the best storytellers, the best people 
that are giving an address, trying to connect with a client, put the other person in their success, in what they've accomplished. Or in a future, we call that bridging, mm -hmm. bridging to another place. And so they might be mired in this, the crisis of the moment. And one of the things that Adele says is, imagine us a year from now, and we're celebrating as a result of what we've gone through together. What are those key things that you're thinking about that, that we've done as a result of, of our work together? And it gets people dreaming and thinking and of all the possibilities, putting them into a future of a, that's what we call bridging. Mm, that's great advice. I like that. And is there, do you follow a particular four-step formula or template when you tell or recommend to tell stories? Because I found that that is quite handy to have. Um, as far as a formula to tell stories, you know, there is actually something that we use and, and it's, and it's something that I've noticed and, it, and it's something that will start to prop up right now around this time of year. You will see it everywhere, which is what we call a trend framework, right? And, mm -hmm. and so you will see this and it doesn't matter. And, and, and here's the thing, and Oliver, you will appreciate this too. It doesn't matter if you're totally wrong about what you predict in your industry, in your profession, in what you do. It does not matter. People love a good prediction. So one framework to think about, one message framework to think about how to talk about something in the future would be in the past, in the past, you know, people thought of public relations as just media relations. Now, public relations embodies a whole bunch of other disciplines, including crisis communications and messaging and so on. In the future, communications is all going to be about AI. Okay, no, it's not. We know that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> But it doesn't matter because the way I set it up was in the past, now, and in the future. Yeah. And people love to think about things this way, right? And if you could I put do. them in that story – Wow, that's a powerful combination, right? That's a great story framework. That is going yeah. to get people to pay attention because everybody has a perspective on what happened in the past, what's happening now, and what's happening in the future. And what you want to do is get someone to react. Your whole goal, really, with good messaging, with good conversation, is to just make someone do this one thing, very mm -hmm. simple thing. Hmm, that's interesting. That's, that's your goal. Yeah. Small, small positive steps. Right? Yeah. And there's mm -hmm. always another step in the convincing continuum, you called it, which, yes. which I mm -hmm. think is a fantastic term. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, I have to ask, but what do you think about splitting the difference? Mm. Oh, yes. It's a great book. Chris is fantastic. His team, Chris Falsh, you're referring to, uh, is, is right, is never split the difference. Negotiate as if your life depended on Yeah, exactly. And, right. And so what he does, it's, it's all about active listening and, you know, the, the value of that, how do you connect with people that might be uh, escalated and, and having, a, you know, you, you, you're needing them to, to get their analytical brain online. It's fantastic for that. What, uh, so, so highly recommended for, for active listening. For, for our book, Convince Me, this is all about using the relationship that you already have, using the conversation that you've just had, and analyzing that so that you can perform better with that person. You can improve your communication, that relationship, because we don't just see people in one shot, and we, just, we don't see people in just one emotion. We see the whole spectrum, the range, right? Especially in today's world. I mean, chances are, if you leave a company, you're 
probably going to see several of those people again in another capacity Absolutely. just because, right? No one's staying at one place any longer. That is yeah. gone some time yes. ago. So, so the purpose of this is, is that seeing people in different contexts, that's what Adele was talking about in the pattern of life. When you are able to see people in different frameworks, what, what are they like in a restaurant to the wait staff? How do they talk about you in the presence of a client? How do they react in a retreat versus how they react on an email, right? So many things that we pick up that you'll find in our book, Convince Me, that if you pull and take the time to study and pull those nuggets out, yeah. you will be amazed at the amount of clarity and just enthusiasm that that person will build towards you mm-hmm. because you took the time to understand them better. And here's the other thing, Oliver, really quickly. Um, and and Chip, you you can kind of say this, but I've heard him say it so many times I can repeat it, right? Um, but, you know, hostage negotiation, the idea of a hostage negotiation is sort of a misnomer. Chip, can you kind of talk about why? I mean, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Oh, that sounds interesting. Over that. Yeah. <laughs> because so, I only know it from movies, obviously. So. Yeah, yeah, right. I'd love, right, I'd love to hear from an actual hostage. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I get that. I completely do. And some of the stuff out there is, is really good. Um, but in, in practical purposes, I never negotiated, quote unquote, with anyone. Mm-hmm. I didn't. My job was to convince them, to convince them to value what I value. So, for example... You've got a hostage taker in there. He's got seven hostages. I never said to that person, all right, you got seven. Tell you what, kill three, give me back four, call it a day. <laughs> never going to happen. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So so the idea here is that I was convincing that person who, who at that moment had a gun to somebody's head. So I had to, I had to and was demanding a million dollars in a jet set. My job was not to deliver him and or negotiate down from a million dollars. My job was to get him to surrender to me, put the gun down, and come out. No one's hurt. So I had to gradually move him down that continuum of understanding, hey, you know, maybe what you want isn't a reality. Bringing them back to what was really important, what they should value, and that's life. And that is, you know, the lives of the people that he was holding. So that's that's the idea of that. Adele. Yeah, and the idea of like the hostage negotiator coming out with a bullhorn and being like, "Put your hands up and get out!" Right? I mean, it's like that's Hollywood. That's total Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works, right? So, I mean, and that was an interesting, you know, um, uh, learning for me. It's like, oh well, isn't it just about like I've got a I've got a you know a red dot on your chest and like I'm gonna pull the trigger if you don't listen to me? And it's like, no, that's not it at all. It's this complex communication set that is required to get someone to do what it is you want them to do. And that's what we're doing in everyday life. A negotiation is much easier. Um, It's like, I've got this, you've got that. Let's figure out, you know, what what we've got to do next. Um, The natural negotiators are the people who are, as you said, they can move in and out. They're fluid in their approach. They understand the different, you know, the room um, and how to read people. And so there's so much more complexity in it than just a negotiation. And our book really covers advanced convincing techniques, you know, things like um, 
One of the things I love in our book, and it's such a weird example, and Chip's always like, "Oh, Adele, you love this example," but I do. I think it's so great. Like we were, <laughs> we were trying to when we were when we were researching the book, I, I, we were we were having this conversation. I'm like, okay. Who are the top convincers? Who are the most convincing people you've ever met in your life? And mm, Oliver, let me question. let me let me ask that of you. Can I ask you that question? Like, if you think of people like you've met in your life, like who are you think some of the most convincing people are? Like, what roles? Do yeah, they have, yeah. Perhaps? What jobs do they have? <laughs> yeah. Um, so my former CEO at EasyJet, he was extremely convincing. Uh, comes to mind. So some CEOs are very convincing, um, and they do this with less force and emphasis than people may expect. Some of those who are, had the privilege of working with or for were quite reserved and relatively quiet, and yet they were extremely powerful. And then, yeah, uh, I have two teenagers here in the house. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and the 14-year-old, the, the she is an extremely good negotiator when it comes uh, to the topic of money and... <laughs> spending time with friends and sleepovers and so on. As you said, I mean, they're, they're very convincing and stubborn. So <laughs> you get the spectrum, right? From yeah. teenagers and kids to um, to CEOs. And uh, yeah, those are those are two groups of people that come to mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what I would say is like, when I was thinking about what types of jobs do people have that are very convincing, right? The one thing that came up, which was sort of a weird example, is like a fortune teller right? You walk into a fortune teller's lair or whatever, and you hand them over a certain amount of money and you walk away and you go, that was a mystical experience. They are so mm -hmm. convincing that you literally think that at some point you've touched the other side through this person. And I was thinking, there's got to be some kind of like communication technique thing that they use you know, um, word patterns that they're using to make someone walk away feeling like they just had a magical experience. Like, how do you, how do they do it? And there's actually yeah. a science behind it called the foyer effect. Yes, and I read about yes, that, the cold reading. Yes, yes, exactly, cold reading. And 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 what you're doing really in a business setting is you're cold reading people all the time, right? You're cold reading them, you're warm reading them because maybe you met them one once or twice, but you're getting a sense of who they are really quickly. And if you can make statements about someone that are, and here's the really weird part about it, they've got to be a little bit critical. And most people are not comfortable with that, right? So if you can give people praise and a bit of criticism at the same time, but something they, they might not expect, um, and but first, what you have to do though is you have to excite them about something they're very good at, and then you have to criticize yeah. them just a bit. But you're only making a statement, and what you're doing that um, by doing this is you're going to pull them out, pull what they believe about themselves out just by this one statement. Here's one example of the four-year effect. You would say something like, "Chip, you have an enormous amount of untapped potential, but you know, I think." you're a little too reserved in meetings and you're not quite there yet. And what Chip would say to me is, 
I do have an enormous amount of untapped potential. Here's where I think I'm, you know, people haven't really got it for me yet. I, I don't really, they don't really understand all the things I could do for this company. They don't understand all the, and I am a little bit reserved and, or, or he might disagree and he might say something like, you know, um, I, you know, I, I, would you ever say I don't have untapped potential? Everybody thinks they could do more, right? So yes. there's no way somebody would disagree with you. So what you're doing is you're pulling out information and what, what fortune tellers do is they say these things, they make these statements and they make these little critical things that they say to you and it yeah. pulls someone out. It makes them tell their story. So when they walk away, they've just been listened to on such a level. They've been seen on such a level that they literally think it's mystical. That, that That's how much we are all craving good communication, that we're willing to pay yes. tons of money for it and walk away feeling changed by someone seeing little clues in what they said. It's amazing. It's just really amazing communication. And that's in the book, the the whole idea of four-year statements and how to use them at work. Yeah, that is such a fascinating area. And I think mentalists, astrologists, yes. uh, there's a whole group of- um, Magicians, magicians. Con Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. So you think they hit the bullseye, but in fact, they just let you throw a dart and then paint the bullseye around it. Yeah. We're looking so well. So exactly. It's, it's so and you're giving them everything. Right, exactly. Yeah, you're giving them all the stuff, right? You're just yeah, you're literally exactly. giving them all the stuff. <laughs> um, I have a funny story, Oliver, really quickly that I'd, li that I'd like to share with you. When I was in college, Please. when I was in college, um, I was, um, you know, I was commuting from um, from into New York, which is always like one of those things where you're never happy and you're sort of like you're you're angry and you're you're really wanting to get the trip over with as soon as possible. And I'm 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 sitting on 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 the the, the subway platform, and this woman walks up to me, and she says. Oh my gosh, you know, I need, I need so much money to get home to my daughter. And it's, it's, it's $12 and 47 cents for the fare from here to New York. And I see you every day on this platform. And I know that you wear, um, this beige jacket. And I saw you wearing a green coat last week. And she's making all these observations about me, right? But I really need this money. And here's my daughter. She's going to be cold if I don't get home to her. And I lost my wallet. And this is pre cell phone days, right? So so I'm like a sucker and I pull my wallet out and I give her the money, right? And I go home where I'm, where I'm living in college. And I'm so excited about my good deed for the day that I share it with one of my roommates. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm like, queen, I'm like, I gave this woman this money and da, 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 da. And, you know, I, it was this amount of money and I was so happy that I did it. And she's like, when did you do that? I said, I did it today. She's like, I gave it to her yesterday. <laughs> so we were both... But, but the interesting thing is like, why was she so effective? She was so effective because she watched me. She understood where I'd be. She knew the train was coming super quick and that I had like, I had to make a choice out of urgency. She noticed something about me that I didn't think other people noticed. Um, she was observant in a way that was surprising. She gave an exact figure, which by the way, as the suspicious New Yorker, I looked is it the same amount of money? It was the same amount of money. Okay, she can't be lying, right? There was all these things that mm -hmm. I was doing to analyze her. And the thing about it is, is she already knew how I'd analyze her and she thought ahead, mm. right? And so yes. most of us walk into difficult, contentious business meetings without doing that level of prep. And she was doing it for like $12.47. We don't do it. We don't do it. And we're at a disadvantage 
when we don't do it. We need to. We need to understand the pattern of life. We need to understand. We need to listen in this forensic listening quadrant and be able to reference things people are saying. We need to observe them in a way so they feel so listened to, they're willing to do what 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 we need to do for them. Not in a not in a negative way, not in a, you know, in a conning way, but in a way that when a way that we can be more effective. And who doesn't need to be more effective? We all do. And if that person does it for $12, then we should really do it in a high-stakes business negotiation. Exactly, exactly. 100%, 100%. I hadn't seen it from that way, but that's a, that's a great story. <laughs> now, as, as a final question, one question for you, Chip, and one for you, Adele. Chip, what would be a good movie um, that actually portrays hostage convinces in, in a good light, but also in a, in a realistic light? Because you said some mm-hmm. are a bit over the top, but is there a good one we should... We think, okay, yeah, that, that kind of checks out. I guess they all have elements that are that are good and bad. I haven't seen one that contains like this is this is the one uh, kind of thing. But if you pull different things from, for example, I I think uh, I don't know if you've ever caught the series over there in in Germany, um, Oliver, but one one over here is called The Wire. Yes. Um, yes. Okay. That's so it, it was well. it's mm-hmm. older. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very realistic, I think, in, in terms of day-to-day uh, police work. And you'll see how these guys, because part of a uh, hostage negotiator's background and training is going to be about interviewing. So you'll see you know, good interviewers in that, um, in that movie that are able to take into account, you know, it's so much more than the good cop, bad cop, yes, right? Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's almost comedy there. now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's, it's right. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, I like do that. love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's such a great show. That's a great show. That's a great <laughs> show. such a great show. God, there's so many good lines, right? There really is. Great writing. It is It is a classic genre, but take it to a completely new level. And I guess it's not Die Hard, right? Die Hard is probably not that. Die Hard is not. I said that the other day to Chip. I was like, you got to tell people. <laughs> Die Hard is not yeah, the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but good entertainment. And uh, I'd, you know, my final question to all my guests is always: um, What's your best piece of communications advice? And, and starting with Adele this time. Oh gosh, what's my best piece of? That's so hard. <laughs> I might throw that to Chip. Um, what I would say is um, just this idea that we learned in the book, which is um, make sure the biggest barrier to convincing is someone else's certainty. And I think you've got to address where you can move them down the convincing continuum. Because if you know certainty mm-hmm. is it, what what could you what could you say and do that could make them go, maybe I don't know as much as I thought. I think that would be it. Interesting, because they're really attached. We are all really attached to our views and opinions, right? Beliefs are so easily. strongly held and and many yeah. times we we hold them and we don't know why. And I think yes. it's really our job. It just feels right. Yeah, it just feels right, right? <laughs> so it's our job as communicators, as as leaders, as as corporate communicators to understand um where where we can create little little edges of doubt because that's what that's what really we need to we need to get people to think differently and 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 to and, and to look at things from a different perspective. And so I would say focus on certainty and understand what their certainty is and then challenge it. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Thank you. Chip? Yeah, I think I think it's understanding that I would say yes to that and I would say it's it's understanding who it is you're talking to. 
you know, it, yeah. it, but understanding in a way that is like, like we're saying with forensic listening and, and getting to someone's unstated narrative, you're truly deeply dialing into that person in a way that no one else perhaps has in the context of your business, of, of their lives, of their day to day. When you do that for someone and, and you can resonate with something, get close to a feeling that they have, a, image of themselves in the future or or who they want to be right now then you are so much better in that in an authentic communication that resonates and they want you to be a part of their world and they will pull you back every time mm. it sounds like, like you have because... an enormous amount of untapped potential chip that's <laughs> yet to be realized <laughs> well, thank you. well i've got so much more to tell you about me. What can I say? I think we tapped that potential quite well over the last uh, hour. So both of yours, Adele, Chip, thank you so much. That was a blast. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me just before Thanksgiving. And the book is called Convince Me High Stakes Negotiation Tactics to Get Results in Any Business Situation by Adele Gambadella and Chip Messi. It's fantastic. And it really nicely complements Never Split the Difference, which um, a lot of you will have be will have, will have read and are aware of. So this is, this is a great addition to the, to the literature on communications and convincing and persuasion. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver. And thank you all for listening and see you all next week.